0: This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Okay, tonight's learning should be dedicated to the Nishmas Basia Roiza Mayer. So this evening we are uh, doing something that we started last year, and I hope not to do it next year. I don't want to make this a new pattern, a new habit... But we've, in the past, we spent some time before Tisha B'av going over those Gemara's in Gittin that are discussing the Chorben Beis HaMikdash and different Chorbanes in Kalah Yisrael's history to give us a little bit of a taste to get us in the mood to get ready for Tisha B'av. We're ready now in the nine days, Shvor maybe, maybe not this year, but we're already supposed to be getting into the mindset of appearing for the Chorben Beis HaMikdash and trying to get... Uh, into the feeling, into the mode, and into the proper mindset for the Chorben. So last year, we started the Gemara on Daf Nun Bays. and we got through to the top of Nun Manal. but what we need to know for tonight is we just need to remind ourselves of the very famous story, very famous comment said in the Gemara on Gittin, Daf why exactly are the sugiahs of to make even in Masechah's Gittin, I spoke about that last year, you're going to have to go listen online, to hear the answer to that question. but the, We left off last year, we had the famous Gemara with the story of Kamtza uBar Bar Kamtza Chor The Gemara makes a very, very important statement. The Gemara says because of a Jew named Kamtza and another Jew named Bar Kamtza because of these two individuals, Chor V'Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim was destroyed. And just to familiarize everyone with that story, the Gemara tells us the story was there was a man who had a, a very good friend named um, Kamtza, and uh, there was Bar kamtza, The two people: one guy was his arch enemy, and one guy was his best friend. And somehow, when the invitations went out for the big suda, the invitation accidentally invited his arch enemy instead of his best friend. The balasuda comes down, and he basically makes a, a royal scene because his arch enemy is at the meal, and his arch enemy gets. Um, Terribly embarrassed because he's thrown out of the party. He then goes and tattles and rats out the Jewish people to the Roman government. This is during Bayisheni, just to keep us in. in you know, throughout Tish above, we're always, especially in the Kinnis, we're always jumping back from Bay Rishon to Bay just to put it into perspective. We have, and in the Kinnis it's even more so, because in the Kinnis we jump back to Bay Rishon, Bay then we have 1240, and then we have the Crusades, and then we have the Holocaust. So there's a lot of jumping around to historical backgrounds. So it's always Kedai just to get all the facts straight, to know what we're looking at. So in these Gemaras, we're focusing on predominantly Bay even though about a, a blot in, we'll jump to Bayes Rishon. But for the first, uh, what's the gear for? Probably tonight is we're focusing on Bayes Sheni. Bayes the Jewish people lived in Eretz Yisrael under the rule of the Romans. You have to remember, we were from the times of the Chashmenoiim. We were in charge of Eretz Yisrael after the Hanukkah story. But as time went on, and the Jewish people were not living the way they should, so the Roman government, the Rome, Rome, who was the mad, the massive, large um, po- powerhouse. Of that time, they were just conquering more and more territory. Ultimately, they came to conquer Eretz and there was a fight. We, we'll talk about it, maybe tonight, if not for Shobalina, Dr. Tekinis. We're going to talk about all the, the Roman-Jewish uh, wars that took place leading up to Chorben Beis HaMidosh. And we'll talk about tonight, hopefully, how the Jewish people had to make a decision to either allow Rome to continue to dominate us and to restrict many of our religious freedoms and other freedoms, or are we going to fight back? And that was the big discussion of of, of, of Bay was did we make the right decision by fighting back? Or maybe we should have placated the Romans, not fought back, and they would have left us alone, they would have left the base at Megdosh. We wouldn't be in control, we wouldn't be like during the times of the Khashmarayim, but at least we'd have a base at Megdosh that's a big discussion that we'll have to get to this evening. But the backdrop is relevant because the Jews were always living in fear of the Romans. The Romans were technically in control of Eretz Israel, and anytime the Jews did something wrong, there was always a threat that Rome would find out, and Rome would punish them. So this fellow who was morbidly insulted by the fact that the rabbis were all at the meal and no one said anything how he was terribly insulted he went and he ran and tattled to the roman government he told the roman government the jewish people are rebelling and he had a whole story how he proved it what was the basis and that's where we're going to pick up this evening so we're picking up how exactly did this cause the roman government to get so upset at us so if we start over here in middle of the gemara we're holding now In the, uh, I'm going to read the Gemara out loud, but if you have a Gemara in front of you, it is definitely, definitely, definitely helpful. We're holding now one, two, three, four, five lines in from the wide lines in the Gemara. So what basically happened was before this is that um, he told, it's interesting, he told, he told Rome that the Jews are rebelling. And Rome's response was, how do you know? prove it to me? And he said, because if I will, if you will try to offer a carbon to the Jewish people, they won't accept it. So, the Gemara tells us that he went and he made a mum in the carbon, and therefore the Jewish people were presented with a dilemma. Should they bring the carbon bimum or should they deal with the wrath of the Roman army? They decided to do nothing. They did not bring the carbon, and therefore Rome was quite upset at this time with the Jewish people. So, that's the backdrop that we need to know. That Rome is mad at the Jewish people because the Jewish people are rebelling because we didn't want to offer their kabanas. And the only reason why we didn't want to offer their kabanas was because it had a mum in it, and this fellow put the moment. So Bar who is the, the villain in the story, because Bar was the reason for the destruction of the base of Bar Kamtza was very mad, very angry and very frustrated. So what he did was, he basically got the Jewish people in trouble with Rome. Says the Gemara. Shadr i'lehon keser. They sent for Neiron keser. So there's a shayla. who to read who sent what. So many before Shemlun Shadr means that Bar Bar Kamsa sent a telegram, he sent a message that ended up bringing Niron, Niron Kaser, who was one of the Caesars of Rome, down to the Jewish community. Ki when he came and he was en route to come to attack the Jewish people, so he did something very strange. Shad a giro the he sent an arrow into the east. Very strange thing. He's coming with his army, he's the, he's the Caesar, very powerful, very, uh, very strong army man, and the first thing he does is he shoots an arrow to the east. So we'll see in a second why exactly he, he does this, but the question which we'll see the Mepharshim ask is why an arrow? What's, what's, what's special about an arrow? So the Ben Yod explains that an arrow is Miramis Taloshin Hara. And again, this is obviously very jewish but the, the Caesar wanted to know, have the Jewish people, and we know Bayesheini was, the problem was lashin Hara. Bayesheini was Sinashinam. And therefore he wanted to see, will the arrow have power, will he be able to overtake the Jewish people, because the Jewish people were lacking in this idea of Lushanhara. Hara. So what happens? He sends an arrow eastwards, also north it fell in the city of Yerushalayim. Lamar, if he sent an arrow to the west, also north of it also fell into Yerushalayim. So he sent an arrow in all directions, and the, the arrow always fell in Yerushalayim. So this was a sign from heaven to Nairon Kesar, that he's right for what he's doing, he's just for what he's doing. He therefore took this as a sign from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the fact that all his arrows were falling in Yerushalayim, like the Ben Yad explained, that the arrow signified the fact that Bnei Yisrael was sinning with Lashon Hara, which an, an arrow and Lashon Hara is a connection. He took this as a sign from Shemayim, that he is justified and, uh, and, and validated in going and attacking the Jewish people. So the Mashah over here has a very basic question that the fact that the arrow fell in the, in the east is not a chiddush if they were coming eastward. And if that's the direction you're coming and you shoot an arrow it's not a chiddush that the arrow fell in that direction. That's what we call normal occurrences. So what was the chiddush? So the mashah explains that he shot this arrow when he was very far away from Yerushalayim. Al piderech the arrow shouldn't have reached that far. But when he saw the arrow, even though it was shot from so many miles away from Yerushalayim, that was a sign to him that he was doing the proper thing and Hashem wanted him to destroy Yerushalayim. The Anaf Yaitsef gives a different answer. He says because Niron was cheshush that even though perhaps the Jewish people deserve to be destroyed, maybe Hashem will make some miracle. He'll make some miracle that even though his arrow is, is projected to go into Yerushalayim, Hashem will make a miracle that a wind will come out of nowhere and knock it away. And when he saw no such miracle took place, and he saw that Hashem is allowing Teva to take its course, he saw that as a sign that he therefore should then get involved and go and attack the Jewish people. The Ben Yod also explains that the reason why he shot an arrow to the Mizrach was because he wanted to see the Mizrach represents Teirah, because we know the Shemesh rises, in the Mizrach, and the Jewish people are like the Torah. So he, and, and the Shemesh is remiss to the Torah. So he wanted to see will the Torah protect the Jewish people? And that's something we're going to talk about tonight as well. As whether or not the Zuzchus the Zuzchus HaLiman that he had to be was that enough to protect the Jewish people from the ultimate Chorbet? He gives another shot to Ben that maybe the role of the Mizrach, the East, was because Maish Rebbeinu is compared to the Shemesh. We know Rashi tells us in Chumesh that Maish Rebbeinu is the Son and, and Yeshua is the Levona. So again, so, so and Kesa was tested was testing the water to see whether or not Moshe Rabbeinu will be able to come in and protect the Bnei Yisrael or not. So, nonetheless, he sends these arrows out, and he likes what he sees. He sees that either, according to the Marsha, even though he shot from a very far distance, the arrow still fell, or according to the Anav if he saw that Hashem didn't stop with, didn't get involved with making a miracle. He took this all as a sign. That he is supposed to do what he does. So so all of a sudden, while he's getting ready to come into Yushalayim, he meets a small child. And he says to him, Tell me a Pasuk. So that if Yosef explains what he was trying to get out of this kid was is that he just saw from Hashem, from the whole shtick with the arrows, that Hashem wants him to attack Bnei Yisrael, Hashem is consenting to this. He wanted to see maybe not only is Hashem consenting, but maybe he'll be rewarded for killing Bnei Yisrael. Maybe Hashem will be rewarded for bringing down the base of Mikdush. So he stopped this kid and asked him, tell me, Apostol, the kid said to him, I will give, I will place my nikoma, my revenge in Edoin, which usually means Rome, which is what we were talking about, Ami so, through so the Jewish people. So the Caesar said, Hashem wants to destroy his house, and he wants to do it through me. He said to himself, one second, the kid told me that Hashem is going to take revenge against those who hurt Klai Yisrael. So why am I going to be the guinea pig? I'm going to be the guy that goes and destroys Klai Yisrael, and then Hashem's going to come back and, get and be a fatayinat on me. No deal. Says the Gamar, Arach the He ran away and he became a Jew. Now, stop for a second and think about this. This would be La Havdil, someone converting to Judaism in 1941 in Germany. Wasn't exactly a good time to be a Jew living in Air Yisrael under Roman control at this point. And not only did that, he was a, he was a Caesar, he was one of the leaders. But he saw the honesty, he saw truth, and he gave it all up. He ran away via and he became Jewish, says the Gemara of Ennafak Minei. And who came from him? Says the Gemara of Ennafak Minei Rivmeir. Rivmeir became a descendant of his. There is a little bit of a shaila exactly on how that worked. If you look in the Rambam, in his commentary, in his Akdoma Tiara the Rambam says that Rivmeir's father was a Gertsevich. So this is Kipshuta, that. That this general, this, this Caesar ran, and he had he converted, and he had a baby, and that baby was Rivmeir. Other people say no, it wasn't exactly a father son. It might have been a descendant, like a grandfather grandson, but definitely Rivmeir Shtam. Rivmeir came from Gerim, and since Rivmeir came from Gerim, he came from this Caesar. If you look in, it's quoted in many of the historical books. According to the Roman version, he committed suicide. So some people say, yeah, because they're not gonna, they don't know what happened to him. He ran away. They figured he ran away and committed suicide, but we know he ran away and he converted to Judaism. Now, there's a fundamental question over here on this Gemara, which we can ask from the beginning of Judaism, Ad Hayye Maze. And the question that the Mefarshim point out is, if Takra, Korish Baruch Hu Pri, decided tam that Klai needs to deserve a korban, so why taka should any specific country get in trouble for it? If Hashem decided that Klai Israel needed to get uh, kicked out of Eretz and by Eretz so why is Bavel blamed? Bavel is merely a of Hashem. And why is Rome blamed? And why are the Nazis blamed? And why are the Arabs blamed? We can go on and on and on forever. If a Garajbar who decided for whatever reason we or a Jew or anyone needs to specifically have a punishment, so why are you blaming the messenger? They are just following the will of Akadish Baruch Hu. And therefore, since they are just following the will of Akadish Baruch why why should they be held accountable? What's on the Pesach? Why would Hashem take the Korb against Edom? Edom was following Hashem's will. Hashem said, you're the shliach to go kill the Jewish people. The Jewish people need to be kicked out of Eretz Yisrael. Well. They sinned, they did Averis, and you're merely my messenger. So it's a very, very fear question. Why should it be this way? The truth is, this kasha comes up when we talk about the Pesach story. In the Pesach story, we all know, it says in the Chomish, that, uh, that, uh, that there was a lot of pain that was given to the Mitzrayim. A lot of pain and suffering the Mitzrayim f- befell after giving us a lot of pain and suffering. And the Rishonim, they all have a kasha. Why did Hashem punish Mitzrayim for doing the will of HaKadosh Baruch? If at the Brisbane Episodim, Hashem decided that all needs to suffer in Mitzrayim, so Mitzrayim was merely a pawn in HaKadosh Baruch great, great plan of life. So why are they held accountable? And again, you can ask this really at every tzara. If for whatever reason Hashem decided that European Jewry had to be annihilated, and we definitely don't understand why, and we don't even attempt to understand why. And, and, and this is again, when we come to Tisha this is a, another time to talk about. We don't talk about it so much throughout the year, but we talk about the tragedy of, of European Jewry. A Lithuanian Jewry was, was, was mamish annihilated. Annihilated Shabbat annihilated. A Lithuanian Jewry got the biggest brunt of, of the Holocaust. Something like uh, 3% of Lithuanian Jews survived the Holocaust. It was terrible. But if, if for whatever reason, Hashem had a gzerm and a the European Jewry had to suffer, so maybe the Germans and the Nazis and, and the Ukrainians and the Poles and all the other terrible people that joined, they were just following Ratzon uh, Hashem. So the Rambam discusses this question, hey, he's talking about it with Mitzrayim. And the Rambam says, the Rambam says, the Rambam says, Kalah Yisrael needed to suffer in the land of Mitzrayim. But each Mitzri didn't have to be the one to do it. Meaning, there was a Zeirah Bnei Yisrael, Bnei Yisrael had to suffer beyond a Mitzri, but I didn't have to be that guy. It could have been my neighbor. And each Mitzri who made a conscious decision to suck, cause pain to Bnei Yisrael, for that reason, they are punished. The Ramban um, the Ramban gives a different herits. The Ramban says in, in Beresh, Perik Tezvav, the Ramban says no, if they were chosen to cause pain to Bnei role by Hashem, you can't hold them accountable. So Tainid the Raman, so why we have Mitzrayim in trouble, says the Rambam, because they went too far. And the Jewish people had to suffer in Mitzrayim because of Xerif from Bishbein Absarim, but the Mitzrayim upped it too high. It was supposed to be a level 5, they made it a level 10. And I guess you could say that for all our Harbanas, perhaps according to this Ramban. Maybe we needed to suffer by Yisrishan under the Babylonians, we needed to suffer by Yisheni under, under Rome, and we needed to suffer under the Crusades, and we needed to suffer under, you name it. But who said it had to be as brutal as they made it? They, and, and culture came in the Holocaust. The, the brutality that existed at that time was uncanny to any other time in history and hopefully should never be repeated. So clearly there is such a madrig when you go too far. Maybe Klai Serol needs it, and we all understand this as parents sometimes, you know, you have to give a punishment, but then you say something, but I don't need to give the kid the most extreme punishment. The kid doesn't have to be grounded to, you till his chasana. He needs to get punished, but there's got to be limits. So therefore says the Ramban, that the, all the Chorbanites and all those nations that were chosen by HaKadosh Baruch Hu to be the vehicle to punish Kala Yisrael, they all went beyond what they should have and therefore, that's why they're held accountable. The Rivid, there's two different versions and the Rivid is quoted in different places, but at least in one place the Rivid gives a different answer. The answer that I'm sure many of you are familiar with is that um, the reason why Hashem chose these nations must have been for a reason. Meaning, why did Hashem chose Mitzrayim to be the place to afflict Klai Yisrael? Why did Hashem chose Bavl as a nation? To, it must be that they aren't exactly the greatest of people. Therefore, says the Ra'iv, due to their past experiences, for whatever they've done in the past, that's why they were chosen to be the people, to be the Shliach of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and therefore they are going to get punished as well. The Hashem ask a question, why was Nairon... Nairon Keser rewarded with Rav Meir coming out from him. Why was that the why wasn't this chus? That he was rewarded, that he became a millionaire. This chus was he became whatever. Why, why was this chus? Because he's, he, he, he saw the response of the child and he said, I don't want to be used as, an, as, as, as you know, I don't want to be blamed for this. And he ran away. He was eager to have Meir. We know Rivmeir was a great Tanna. Don't get me wrong. But why Riv from all rewards? So the ben Yard gives a very nice pshad. Ben Yard explains, because clearly this, this Niron was impressed by miracles. He saw miracles and he said, I, I see something's going on over here. Right When the arrows all went a funny direction, he said to himself, there's something going on over here. Hashem has a, has a cheshbet. Therefore, Rivmeir Balhanes, he was able to have a descendant who was Rivmeir, who was a Balhanes, he was able to perform miracles because his father or grandfather looked at things in life and said, Taka, this is a, this is abnormal, this is a sign from HaKadosh Baruch The Eretzvi, the, the tree framer, and once we, some, I like to, as we, especially at this time of the year, talk about Yidin and Gedolin that we lost over the Khurban. So, Tri we will talk a little bit about him. We've spoken about him in other, se- in other settings, but it's Kedai to go through it again, especially before Tishav. Tzvi Freimer has a pshat in this Gemara. In this why he was Eichet to have me. But before we get to his pshat, it's Kedai to talk a little bit about his life. Rabbi Tzvi Freimer was born in 1884. He learned by the Avdanezer. He was a Talmud by the Abdenazer. The Abdenazer had a yeshiva. The was a Rebbe. He was a Rav and he was a Rosh Yeshiva. And the three Froyim were learned in his yeshiva. And when the Abdenazer died in 1910, the Abdenazer's famous son, who we all know today as Shemish the, Shem the Sachet Shavah. So a year after his father's passing, he opened the yeshiva to bes- in memory or I guess uh, continue his father's legacy but the Shemishmu was busy being the Rebbe of Sachachov so he appointed the uh, Tzvi Framer to be the Rosh Shiva of the Abdenazer Yeshiva and he was Rosh Shiva until World War I began and when World War I began that was the end of the basically the entire Sachachov community was uh, destroyed again not not Nazi version but just because of war and he had to start traveling and that's when he traveled and he became a Rebbe of a town called Klozhegov which is why many people refer to him as the Klozhegove Rebbe, but he was only Robin Klozhegove for a very short time. I don't, I don't really think that's the right title to give to uh, Rabbi Trey but what's perhaps more famous about Rabbi was in 1934, right after the passing of Rav Meir Shapiro, um, he was picked as the Yeshiva for Chachmi Lublin. He took over the Yeshiva of Chachmei Lublin. And just to put into perspective, to get into Chachmei Lublin, you had to memorize, I believe, 300 Blat Kemar. That's to be a Talmud in the yeshiva. So let alone what it means to be a rush yeshiva. Just to think about that on, on, on a level for a second. To be a Talmud, you have to have 300 blad. And we know some very famous Talmudim that went to Lublin, Shmuel Vazner, for those Canadians that are listening, one of the great Gedolim of not so long ago, I, uh, his son actually uh, lives here in, in my neighborhood. I got a chance to speak to him. Rep. Uh, Hirshbong was a Talmud of the Lublin Yeshiva. So to, just to be a Talmud of the Lublin Yeshiva, you have to, I think no know 300 blot by heart. So you can imagine what Rabbi Framer knew. Rabbi Framer in his youth wrote a sefer. He wrote a couple of sermons. In his youth he wrote a sefer called Tziach Asada. He wrote that very early in 1912. And then when he was already much older, 1938, he wrote a more famous sefer called Eretzvi, which is often quoted, and that's where many of his Torahs from. He wrote an Achumish, he wrote a Shas and Tshuva sefer. Very, very fascinating fascinating stuff. In 1938, at one of the Knessiah for the Shas, uh, one of the Knessiahs, he decided with a new invention, which I believe is still popular today, he came up with Mishnayis yoymi, a Mishnah a day. Instead of a Blad a day, he did a Mishnah a day, and um, I think that was a very successful initiative. I think it's still very much alive today. Um, in 1939, when the Nazis invaded Poland, so he went to Warsaw and he found himself in the Warsaw Ghetto. He was one of the Gedolim in the Warsaw Ghetto during the uprising. Right? There's a lot of the history and discussion and, and misinformation about what exactly took place in the Warsaw Ghetto, but there were Gedolim that were alive during the uprising. One of them was Menachem Zemba, who supposedly was one of the... One of the people running for the position of taking over Lublin, and it's interesting. They say Reb Meir, that Reb Menachem Zemba was one of the contestants to take over Rosh Hashiva, and um, the uh, framer wasn't even on the list. And yet, they Hanholas chose him to be the Rosh Hashiva. But in any case, the framer was in the ghetto, and there's stories about how he survived in the ghetto. He he was working to make shoes in the ghetto. And after the uprising, which again is a shmoos for a different time, but one of the chesroiness or the downside of the of the uprising was it caused for a, basically a smoke out of the ghetto and a complete emptying out of the ghetto. And Tzifraim was taken to Madanik, and he was killed in the gas chambers of Madanik. Reports say that when he went to the gas chambers, he went dancing and singing. With, with a great simcha and bimikadish, shem shemayim, through dying al-Kedesh Hashem. But again, Rabbi Tzri the closure girl, is another one of our korbanos that we lost in the Holocaust. He was murdered in Madanik in 1942, 1943, shortly a few weeks after the uh, uprising of the Warsaw Ghetto. If I'm not mistaken, he has, a, he has nephews who survived the war, I heard there is a, a, a Freimer wing somewhere in YU. I believe that is named for him as well. But his Torah continues. We have the Eretzvi, we learn, and his Shas and Chuvas are quoted a lot. His Farma Khumish is very nice, but he was murdered in, in Madanik um, by the Nazis. In any case, so what was his Pshat? So, Rabbi Freimer explained beautifully, he says that what was Riv Meir? He says that um, the Beisam Migdash lit up the world. The destruction of the Beis Hamedus caused a darkness to the world. So when this Nairon Kesar decided not to be the one to destroy the base of HaMikdash, not to be the one to bring darkness to the light, to the world, in essence, he was Zayichet to bring light to the world. Who was light onto the world? Riv Meir. The whole word Meir means to light up the world. And therefore, since he chose not to darken the world with the Chorbin, but rather he decided to give light to the world by, by, by not being the one to destroy the base of HaMikdash, he was then Zayichet to be the one to produce a Rev Meir who very much lit up the world. Okay, so now, we have a problem. Now the Romans had a problem. They had no general to, to attack the Jewish people. So the Gemara continues. They sent Vespasian. Okay, Vespasian we know a lot about. I'll we'll talk about him in the Gemara. They sent Vespasian to be the new general in charge. Also, he comes, Tsar He laid siege around the, the, the walls of Yushalayim for three years there were at that time in Yerushalayim three wealthy men three very wealthy men one was Naktim and Ben-Gurion one was ben kalba Savua, and one was Ben-Tzitzis-Akesis three Jews that were very wealthy living in Yerushalayim at this time then the Gemara explains how they all get these very unique names Naktim and Ben-Gurion he's referring to the Gemara in Tainis the Gemara in Tainis tells us that The Jewish people needed to borrow money and they had to make up a deal that it's going to be paid back when they got water and they're going to pay it back by a certain time and they didn't have water yet. So he basically had the sun come back out and not set yet in order so it could still be daytime to keep their end of the deal. So that's Nakdima Ben-Gurion. We're talking about very Chasheva people, clearly. Um, Ben-Kalba-Savuah, how do you get a name Ben-Kalba-Savuah? Kalba-Savuah means a dog of satiation. Says the Gemara, Rov Kikel. If anyone that came into his house hungry as a dog, Yotze Kishu Sevei, he left full and satiated. So you clearly see he was a big Bal Chesed. Ben Sittis Hakesses, who's the last last fellow? Ben Sittis Hakesses, Shai Shtitzos in Ygeres Algabi His Sittis used to drag on cushions. He used to have people carrying cushions uh, so his Sittis doesn't drag on the ground. His seat used to be amidst the, the, the big hotshots in Rome. So we're talking about big knockers, as we'd say today. Big hotshots, financially well connected, well hooked up. And Mufarshan you know, pointed out a nice shot over here that you, know, you see he wasn't embarrassed to dress Jewish in front of people. According to the first shot, he, he wore, sit this out. They dangled on Kosses, uh, on which means he wasn't embarrassed to wear a Jewish malbush when he went out. He didn't hide his Jewish look when he went out. He was proud of his Jewish look. He was proud of the way he looked as a Jew. He wasn't hiding it, even though perhaps, according to Kadamri, he went amongst G'deli Roimi. He went with the, with, with the most uh, highest-ranking people at that time, the G'deli Roman. He wasn't embarrassed of his dress code. He felt proud proud to be a Jew. He dressed like a Jew, and he wasn't embarrassed. Again, Mepharshim pointed out that these three people were very special people. They were willing to accept upon themselves, we'll see in a second, they were big Bali chesed. They were big Bali balichesed, they were big balichestokah, they, they were cured, they were concerned for the people. So the Gemara says, what happened? They decided that they're going to support Kala Yisrael. Because again, there was a siege, there was a blockage around Yerushalayim, nothing coming in, nothing coming out. So if there's nothing coming in, nothing coming out, you're going to starve. So, how are you going to live? So, these three Ashir, these three wealthy people, decided they're going to self support the entire city of Yerushalayim. So, the Gemara tells us what happened. One of them said, I'll support them with wheat and barley. I'll support them with, with, uh, with wine and, and salt, and oil. I'll support them with wood. And each one, I guess whatever industry they worked in, they were able to support and give back to the people to support them. The Gemara says, "V'shivuchu Rabbanu the Ditzivi." The Rabbanu praised the wood to the Ditzivi. The Rvchizda called Ikaldi Yavi Mosel the shami because the used to give over all his keys to his assistant Barmid Ditzivi, except for the key to the wood, the wood chest. Wherever they kept the wood, that was very important, very choshev. So, giving up wood is a big deal. The Amorit chizda akalba dechiti shitin to fill up a, a, a warehouse of wheat. You need sixty akalba de tzivi akalba de tzivi haveluhu. Where to go? Akalba dechiti boy shitin akalba de tzivi havelun haveluhu. You need to have more havelun uh, lemeizin. I forgot to read how you read this. Akalba dechiti boy shitin akalba de tzivi haveluhu. Boy shitin akalba de tzivi. I think Mar is saying over oh, that you need more. To, to fill up a house of wood. Okay, so wood is more khashif. Now this is what we need. Says the Gemara, it's unbelievable, just think about this from an economical standpoint. Says the Gemara, uh, These three could have continued supporting everyone for 21 years. For 21 years. Can you imagine that? 21 years they could have solely supported the people of Yerushalayim. But there was a problem. Havi Buhu Hani So now we have to talk a little bit about the history of what was taking place during this time. During Bayushani, when we were under the control of the Romans, there were different groups and and segments in Kala Yisrael. The Herba was known as the Beroini. The Beroini were what we'd call today warmongers. They were hot-headed, Rashi calls them Amaratim and Rakim. They weren't exactly the Tamid HaKhamim, they were hot-heads, and they wanted a fight, and they wanted uh, perhaps independence, and they were looking to go to fight. They were always ready to fight, 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 fight Rome, battle them, don't give in, be tough. That was the Beroini. Then we had the Tzedukim, who didn't believe in Tereshavah Pet, they were uh, a, a Betzara. And then we had what's called the Perushim. The Perushim were what we call ourselves, the, 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 the Orthodox movement with the Perushim, And the Perushim's outlook on Rome was not the same as the Beroinim. The Perushim's outlook on Rome was much more, <coughs> let's not go to war. And we'll see why exactly. But this was a big interpersonal conflict between the Beroinim and the Perushim. The Beroinim were war mongers. They wanted to go to war, let's fight, let's fight. We can't sit idly, we can't let Rome uh, take us over. They were very, very pro-war. Why the Purushim, the Orthodox, were much more we know we know we have to know our place. We don't we're not in control, we have to be Machni ourselves, a very different attitude. So the Gemara says, Hani Havibuhu, Hani They were amidst them, those Beraini. Amruluhu the Rabbonan said, Nafik shlom The Rabonin said, Let's go make peace with the Romans. Let's appease the Romans. Let's make peace. Let's not fight them. Maybe if we make peace, they'll leave us alone. Says the Gemara, kinu. The Beroinim would not hear of it. The Beroinim would not hear of any possibility of making peace with the Romans. No, we're going to fight them till the end. Says the Gemara. So what happened next? So the Gemara says, Viter, what happened? So before that, just to point out, Mepharshim point out, why was there a tsar of three years? So they say, because you know, in Judaism, three is a big number. We have the three avois, we, we use a lot with Kain levi Yisrael. So the Romans wanted to see that three years go by, that's already a sign that this is, uh, they're okay with attacking the Jewish people. And therefore, after three years was when things really have... That, that's how long they, they kept it going for. So what happened? So the Beroinim told the, the perushim, No, we're not letting you go out and, and make peace with them. Says the Gemara, what about going to war? Amar luhu neifig v'navet karva so let's go to war. We will not win. The Rabbanon told the Bureynim we're not going to win. So what happened says the Gemara. Says the Gemara. So the Berenim took matters into their own hands. The Berenim said if you guys are not going to go to war on your own I'll make you go to war. What did he do? He They burned down the, the they burned down the Warehouses that had the food to, to sustain the people for 21 years and now the people have no choice. They're going to have to go to war because the siege is going to kill them. So therefore says the Gemara, these Bireinim decided that they so much wanted to go to war against the Romans that even though the Rabbanan didn't let them, they forced the Rabbanan to have to go to war by burning down all their all their food, so now they're, st- they're going to starve to death, so they have to go to war. So the Ben Yod has a gewaldic piece over here, it's unbelievable, he, expl- he explains, what was the Svar of the Berenim, and what was the Svar of the Tamid Yahacham? The Berenim were convinced that if they go to war, they're going to win, the Rabbans, and said, if we go to war, we're going to lose. So I would have thought, Pashup is the Berenim were hotheads, they were, uh, they liked to fight, they weren't from uh, Tamid and they liked the, liked the battle, uh, pride, Jewish pride, they were fighting for, but the Ben Yod says much nicer, the Ben Yod says no, these Baraynim were thought that they're going to win in war B'shosh HaTayrah. As we know that during Ba'a there was a lot of Torah being learned. There was an abundance of Liman HaTayrah. And therefore they thought that B'shosh HaTayrah, they'll be saved. So why did the, the perushim argue on that? So the Ben Yad explains that the perushim said, E'nach you're right. That normally Torah has a Kayach to protect us. And we have a principle called Akol Kol yakayv. We are done. We, we survive through Akol through Torah and Tefillah. But said the Bani Yoda, but Khazal knew that there was something wrong with our Torah, it was mixed with Lash and Hara since we had we had all these bad interpersonal relationships and, 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 and dealings that stared that ruined our abilities to be able to be successful in war so even though says the Ben yada Avada we had a lot of Torah during Bayashani, but we, that would not be enough to, to help us succeed in the war because of all of the Lashen Hara and the bad speech and the negativity that we had and therefore Chazal knew not to go to war but they had no choice now because the Bahrain burnt down the entire uh, storehouses now they're going to starve to death so therefore they were forced to go into war. then the Gemara tells us a story over here about a woman called um, says the Gemara let's just read it one more time so what happened um, so, um, they went and they burned down all the storage houses of the wheat and the uh, misfortune point out they don't talk about the storage houses of the wood but okay and therefore there was a hunger Says the Gemara, Marsa Baisis. There was a woman named Marsa Bazbaisis Asirosa in Yerushalayim Havye. She was one of the wealthy women of Yerushalayim. Now there's a Gemara, and I believe it's Yivamist, the Gemara talks about a woman named Marsa who was married to Rabbi and Gamlo. And that took place during Yanai Hamelach, which was way before Churban Beis Mikdash. So the first of all, try to figure out: is this the same woman? Is it not the same woman? Again, the discussion: is this the same woman? But we have this woman, Marsa Bas Baisis. So the Gemara told us she was rich. So what happened? Says the Gemara, Shadrosa This is all during the siege when there was no food coming in, in and out of Yerushalayim. So Shadrasa leShluche, she sent a messenger. Her amrale, she said to him: Zel la Samida. Go out and buy me Samida. What's Samida? So they translate it as fine flour. Ad ozel is dabin when he went to the market, it was already sold. Also, amale smida leka chirusa ica. Okay, there's no smida, but there's khirusa. What's well, chirusa? The, the court is, is white bread. Okay, not as good, but manageable. So, amale she said zil aysili go buy it. Ad ozel is dabin. By the time he got back to the store, it was gone already. For amar and he says to her, "Khirusa leka gushkura ica. We have gushkura. Gushkura is coarse bread, hard bread, not as gushmak as the other two. So Amalei she said, "Zelaisily, go buy it for me." Ad ozel is By the time he got back to the market, this is why you need to have a cell phone. This way, if you have a cell phone, you can call from the market. You can ask her what she wants. But this was a pre-cell phone, so she had to go back to the house, ask her what she wants. And by the time he went back to the market, everything was gone. Um. So what happened? Amalei Also, Amalei gushka leka kimcha They have a wheat of barley, which I guess is a lower level. Amr, go buy it for me. Ad the is dabin and uh, was gone already. She says, She was uh, barefooted. Amra, she said, She said, You know what? Forget you. You're a lousy messenger. I'm going to go out myself to see what's cooking in the street. something to eat. So, what happened was she stepped in some form of uh, animal manure. And she couldn't handle. She was such a Mufunekis type of lady. She was an Ashir b'yushalayit. She never stepped in the air. You know, simple people step in animal uh, manure. She was an aristocrat. She was royalty. So she got so grossed out, so to say, from stepping in it. She died. Okay. Now, what's the purpose of this story? So the first point out the purpose of the story is to contrast her to the other three people that we mentioned. She was rich and she was selfish. She only cared about herself. What am I going to eat? What am I going to do? What's best for me? The other three Ashirim that we had in the Gemara, Kalba Savu and Akimim and Gurion. these people said, how can I help the Jewish people? The Torah is telling us, the Gemara is telling us, look at the different attitudes. You have people that are, Baruch Hashem, well off and financially stable and their attitude is, I don't care, I'm not sharing a dime with Achina Bnei Yisrael. It's my money, I worked hard for it, I'm not giving it to you. Then you have people who, Baruch Hashem, are financially stable and all they want to do is help other people. That they're always looking for avenues, ways, building, marbits, spreading. These are the two different outlooks on life and the Gemara is contrasting these three, Ashirim, these three great people to this one very awful woman who was stingy and did not share her money. The Gemara has another version of what happened with this woman. Says the Gemara What's the other version? Some people say it was a different story. Says the Gemara, what's the says um, the says the Gemara, the Reb She stepped on or she ate Akhla, she ate the gregarious of Reb Visnasya and she got uh, grossed umesa and she died. What does it mean, the gregarious of Reb Tzadik? Reb Tzadik boy in shnin betanisa. Reb used to fast forty years prior to the Churban Beis Hamikdash loylecher of Yerushalayim. So Yerushalayim should not be destroyed. Why forty years? So the Mefarshim explained, because the Gemara tells us that forty years before the Churban Beis Hamikdash, the wall, the doors of the Heichal used to open up on their own as a sign to say we're no longer in control. So Rabbi Tzaddik already got the hint, he already got the message, he got the memo, already 40 years before the Korban he was fasting. And he wasn't just fasting, says the Gemara. He was intense fasting. He was so emaciated that when he'd eat something, you'd see it from the outside. We can imagine this because we have Nebuch, sadly, we have pictures of Holocaust survivors. You see how skinny they are. You see their bones. Clearly, you can count how many bones they have in them. Says the Gemara Reb Tzaddik was so thin. He was so emaciated that when the food would go down his throat and into his stomach, you can see it from the outside. Says the Gemara Reb when he was healthy, they used to give him a, a gregaris, all he would do was, was, was suck out the drink, and he would throw it out. So Mepharsha point out, why was this the way that, that Marsa died? Because it's the same idea. Reb Tzaddik fasted 40 years for Klai Yisrael. He cared so much about the Jewish people and this woman could care less about the Jewish people. And therefore says the Gemara that's the contrast. That's why she died on the same fig that Reb Tzaddik lived off of. Because Reb Tzaddik lived for Klai Yisrael. He put himself through pain. He fasted 40 years for Klai Yisrael's benefit. And this Marissa couldn't care less about Galat Yisrael, even though she was financially stable. Before have a kasha, they point out, how is it exactly possible that he fasted for 40 years? He has to eat on Shabbos, he has to eat on Pesach. So how did he deal with all that? So I think the answer that they give is that he started off fasting regularly, and then because he became so accustomed to fasting, his body needed him to fast. He couldn't, he couldn't eat on Pesach, because his body couldn't handle it. He needed to go back to a Mamash, a no-food die but in any case it's unbelievable Monsieur Snefesh for what he did for Klai Yisra. Says the Gemara at the end of the story, this is amazing. Saysha, when she was dying, pixo the the kasbo Shadisa Beshuka, she took all her money. This wealthy Marsa, all the big bucks that she had. And she's dying now from from eating the, 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 the fig of oh, Tzadik. She said all this money my what is it worth? Silver in the streets, they're going to throw. She came to the realization that what is all this money going to do? If she would have used her money to help Kli, that money would have had Nitzchias. But because she kept that money stingily in her own house, and now she's dying, money can't bring her back. There's nothing she could do now. She's stuck. She's going to die a very painful death. One of the great Gidoilim. Who suffered miserably in the Holocaust, but Baruch Hashem survived, was Rabbi Zev Gusman. I like to talk a lot about Rabbi Gusman. I find him to be a fascinating gadol. Many people know him. Many people knew him. Many people learned by him. Many people spoke to him, and he was one of the previous generation gedolim. And we know that Rabbi Gusman was the Talmud of Rabbi Shimon. He learned in the same yeshiva I learned in. Maybe that's why I feel a connection to Rabbi Gusman he learned in Shauter, Grodna. in Grodna I learned in that yeshiva when it was in Queens and it is in Queens but he was there at 11 years old he was a Talmud by when he was 11 years old he was a Chavrusa with a Pchaim at night they used to learn Yushalmi from like uh, 12 to 4 or 5 a.m. every night and then they learned Kutchim and at the age of 22 when he got engaged to his wife his wife was the daughter of Rivmeir Basim. Rivmeir Basen was one of the the Rabbanim in the Vilna community. Rabbi Salvechik said about with Meir Basin because Rabbi Salvechik, when he was in Berlin, this with Meir Basin was in Berlin for medical purposes and they somehow talked and learning, and, and Rabbi Salvechik was amazed by him. Now you have to know to, for Rabbi Salvechik to be amazed by anyone is a very big deal, but Rabbi Salvechik was very much in the spot all from this with Meir Basin. This with Meir Basin died. He died and the deal was that, that if Gusman was going to take him over as the Dayan, he's going to take him over as the Dayan, the only problem was if Gusman was at the age of 22, at the age of 22 he wasn't yet ready to be a Rabbi, he was never trained to be a Rabbi, he was learning what we call today, Lambdus he was learning the Yeshiva style of lambdus. he wasn't ready to be a, uh, a Rabbinic figure he wasn't ready to, definitely not to fill his Shver's position as one of the most Chasheva Dayanim, in one of the most Chasheva towns in Europe, in the Vilna the uh, the Yushalayim of Vilma it you know, was a big deal so the Chaimoyez told him you know Gemara he says yeah I know Gemara so he says good so now sit down learn all the Yosef, and I'll teach you I'll show you how to be a P'aisik." now in order to be on to get Smicha, to be on the Bezim with Rev, with Chaimoyez he had to know Shas and Shulchan Aruch by heart so Reb Gussman by the age of 22 memorized Shas and all of Shulchan Aruch it's just an amazing thing to think about. In any case, in the June of in June of 1941, the Nazis invaded Vilna, and the first person the Nazis always came after were the Rabonim. And since Rev Gusman was already one of the head Rabonim in Vilna, again already passed. Ukraimizer died really before the Nazis invaded. Ebraheimizer died while Vilna was still a safe haven, was still under the Russians. But Reb Moisier did not see the horrors of the of the war. His wife survived. Uh, not his wife was alive at the onset, and Gusman spent a lot of time always trying to help Rebbe the, the Reb, Reb Chaim Moyz's Rebbitzin to help her as much as he can. I believe she perished in the Holocaust as well. So, in 1941, Gusman had to run away, and this is where Reb and this is where Reb Gusman tells us about another great God who died in the Holocaust, which also a lot of people don't talk about. And this was the Marcheses. The Marcheses was also one of the great Dayonim in Vilna. The Macheshes was Chanoi Chenech, Agis, He wrote a sefer, which we quote sometimes in our Sunday morning share, the Macheshes. The Macheshes was brutally, brutally murdered by the Nazis. And Rav Gusman was there to see it. He knew about it. He testified about it later. And uh, Rav Gussman told us about that. And he was, again, another great gadol that's not talked so much about. In Holocaust, we already so far mentioned two great gadolim, great great European that we still learn this from last year if you remember we spoke, we spoke a lot about um, who was also murdered by the Lithuanians in, in, the, in the war and this year we're focusing on Chief Reimer and the Macheshers but we all know and, and this is where I'm coming to with the story is when they after Reb Guzman ran away from the original uh, attack from the Nazis gathering the rabbis then the Nazis rounded up all of the Jews of Vilna and when he was online with another fellow who Reb Guzman knew, the fellow said, I'm very nervous because before we came to this point, the Nazis told us we have to give up all our jewelry and all our money before we come to the station here to be transported to different places. And I didn't listen and I have all this money on me. And I'm nervous that one of the Nazis are going to pat me down. They're going to see them carrying money and they're going to kill me. So Reb Gusman said, okay, I'm going to help you. Give me all the money. And Rav Gusman, along the steps that they were taking to get to the area where the Nazis were telling them where to go, Rav Gusman was dropping all the money along the way. And Rav Gusman used to teach this Masech, this blat, this tamidim, he said that's B'shad in the Pasuk. This fellow had all this money, and the money was worth nothing. He had to throw it all on the ground because if the Nazis would have caught him with this money, the Nazis would have killed him. And if Gusman said, that shot in this pasuk over here, the pasuk that we said, that silver you have to throw away, it's not worth anything, you can't do anything with the money. The money's is useless, useless, it has no, has no value. He said that was what took place during the war. The postscript was with Gusman, his wife and his daughter, survived the Holocaust, they were partisans, hiding out in the forest, so Guzman didn't to shoot. But one of the tragedies is that if Guzman lost his son. He had a son named Mayer. His son was beaten brutally, basically while he held on to him, while the Nazis beat him, and he died in his own hands. And he tells the story uh, horrifically how his son died in his arms, and he buried him, and he took off his shoes, and he sold his shoes to get food for his wife and his daughter. And he said that he wasn't able to eat from that food. He couldn't stomach eating food that he used from his... This was the eye... The eye, of, the apple of his eye, his, his son, his son Meir was his prized son, and he buried him. And I just saw this year, that's something I never knew, that the, the, one of his Talmudim asked him later on, you know, his feelings post-war, he said, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think and see and picture those shoes of my son Meir. It's, it's, it's a trauma that Holocaust survivors lived with forever. Hopefully, we won't have a tishabub this year, but if we have to do kiddush, I want to talk a little bit about it at the kiddush when we talk about the, the Holocaust, the trauma that some, some of these years lived with forever and ever, and what they saw in the Holocaust. So, if Gusman told us, talmidim, that's proud in this fuss over here that money's not worth anything during the Holocaust, just like during the times of the Romans, having money didn't help you, it didn't save you, it didn't protect you. The Gemara continues, the Gemara tells us now a new story. Tells the Gemara, Abba Sikra, there's a fellow named Abba Sikra. Who is Abba Sikra? Reish Bireyni Yerushalayim. He was the head Beroyn. He was the head of this gang, the Beroinim, who we just said were real troublemakers. The Beroinim were not good people. The Beroinim were not the, the, the Perushim. They were not. The, they were not the Orthodox movement. They were the troublemakers. They were the ones who wanted to go to war. And who was the head of this party? A fellow named Abba Sikra. Who was Abba Sikra Says the Gemara Barachse de Yehiel ben Zakai. He was the nephew of Yehiel ben Zakai. B'yechah M'Zakai, just a little bit about his life. B'yechah M'Zakai, the first 40 years of his life, he worked. He had a job. The next 40 years of his life, he learned. In the last 40 years of his life, he taught tire. So B'yechah M'Zakai was, uh, at this point in history, B'yechah M'Zakai was basically like the Gadol Dar. He was like the leading figure in Kala Yisrael during Chorben Beis and post-Chorben Beis But his nephew, his, do- his sister's son was the Reish so what do you see from this Gemara? You see from this Gemara that uh, from very chosha families, sometimes it doesn't always uh, work out that way. Sadly, there were many luminaries in Europe whose children were not from. Nebuchadnezzar didn't stay from. It was a big Nesai it wasn't easy. There was a lot of different things pulling people to different, uh, different things. There was communism and there was uh, a Zionism and, and socialism. There was a lot of isms in Europe. And a lot of B'nai Torah got swept up and caught up in these different moments. So here also, this head of the B'reinim was the nephew of Ebi ben Zakei. So the Gemara tells us a fascinating conversation. Says the Gemara, Abir ben Zakei said, we got to do something about this situation. We can't continue on with Yushlim being under siege like this. We, we got to do something. So what happened? Says the Gemara, lei. he sent the message to his nephew, the de'gabe'i also. Let's talk in private. Obviously, we can't meet in public. We're arch enemies. You're the Berurian; I'm the Perushim. Let's have a private meeting, closed door meeting, to discuss the situation. Amalei, Ebiachem, said to his nephew, "Ad emas hachi. How long are you going to do this? You're going to kill us all with, with, with hunger." So he said back to him, "Amalei, maya avid. What do you want me to do? The humidi If I say anything to them, they're going to kill me." And we just got finished saying that he was the head of the Bireynim. But as we know so many times in so many movements and parties, sometimes the people who start the movement end up getting uh, losing power and then therefore at some point if they'd want to leave, they would be an, in threat. Lahavdil, there, there were many people who originally joined the Nazi party and were in the Nazi party, but when things got as gruesome and, and, and violent as they did, they wanted out of the party. But they basically said, you know, you, you know too much already. You're too involved. You can't leave the party. I don't think that was the majority of the SS officials. Most of them were ruthless thugs who enjoyed murdering Jews. But there were a, f- a few people who Taka said that they really didn't mean this much. But by the time they uh, got caught up already, they, they, they you know, if they would have left, they would have been killed. So over here, he was saying that I want out, but they're going to kill me. So I'm a- So says, I have an etzer. The Afik Efshir... An option for me, the afik, that I can get out of this siege. Maybe if I can get out of Yushalayim, maybe if I can get out of this, this, this siege that we're under, maybe I can figure out a way to save the situation. So So he basically is trying to come up with this whole plan to fake a death, make believe that Yerchal died. If Hebecham Benzakei died, the Beroin will let the dead body come out of Yerushalayim, and he'll fake his own death, he'll come out on the other side, he'll be able to go, he'll be able to go out and um, and, and speak to whoever he thinks he's going to speak to. So what happens? So, uh, So he basically said, I want you to, knock I want you to make it sound like that you're sick and you're shvach, make believe you're sick, let the word go out, and Hebecham is sick, and then take something smelly and put it under you because the Bireinim really only wanted you to leave if your body started to decompose and smell. Let people say he's dead. And only let your students carry you. Don't let anyone else carry the bed. Basically, we, don't, we can't let anyone carry the casket because anyone who carries the casket is going to realize the casket is... The right? the We know something called dead weight So therefore if they're going to be able to carry a live man They'll be able to tell the difference in weight between a dead body and a live body It would be a dead giveaway No pun intended It would be a giveaway that he's not really dead So they came up with this whole plan to figure out a way That they can fake Be'vyech um, HaMzakeh's death get him outside Yerushalayim. Once he's outside Yerushalayim he'll somehow talk to the Romans to figure out some peacemaking. Because again, the Perushim wanted to make peace with the Romans. Says the Gemara, they did this. So carried one side of the coffin, carried the other side of the coffin. When they got to the entrance to leave the the, the, the city, so the Beraitim were no fools. They wanted to make sure he's really dead. So they wanted to stick, you know, like a sword through the coffin to make sure he's really dead. They're going to say, what? They're going to say, this is what you do to rabbis who die. You plunge knives through them. So they figure, okay, let, 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 let's push the body. They're going to say, this is what you do to rabbis. Uh, even the Beroinim had episode Madrega of how you're supposed to treat a rabbi. Fine. So Paschulei. So finally, they let them through. So Bar HaShem, Abiyach was able to, for, to, to to fake his death. They didn't stick anything through the body. They didn't shake the body. The baraynim, uh gave up, gave in, and they were able to get Abiyach HaMazakeh to the other side. So what happens? Now Abiyach HaMazakeh is on the other side. So what? Says the Gemara, Kimatul Hasim Oma, Shlomo Aleichem Malka, Shlomo Aleichem Malka. So he meets uh, Vespasian, and he tells Vespasian, Shlomo Alecha, Shlomo Alecha. He says, But Shalom alecha Malka, he calls him king. So so Vespasian says to him, You twice. You have a double sentence. You have a double death sentence. Why? Obviously the Mufarsh point out that um, there's no major idea to have you know there's no other thing as double double murder, right? You can't die twice. But he's saying that your statements give cause you to be punished for two things you said. What are the two things? Says the Gemara, why? first of all, I'm not a king. you You call me a king, that's Mer uh, Amalchus. I'm just a general. So why haven't you shut up till now? the Either, if you're saying I'm a king, it's not true because I'm not a king, and therefore you're a Ba Malchus, back to whoever the king was back in Rome. And if I'm a king, so where have you been till now? You're Mari Malchus, you haven't come visit me, you haven't come to show any interest. So Amalei he answers back. on the taina that, that um that you, um, you're not a king. Says the Gemara, if you're gonna be a king, you're destined to be a king. Why? Says the Gemara, because if you wouldn't be a king, there's no way Yishalayim would fall in your hands. The it says in the pasuk, the levonan the in Ad, with adeh it will fall. Vein Adir el Melech, Adir means a Melech. Tichsivoy Adiroy Miman Mimanu. Vein Levonan el Beis Hamigdash, and Levonan means the Beis Hamigdash. So it says the levonon only will come down with Adir means only a Melech, someone who has a status of a king, a king of Rome, can bring down the Beis Hamigdash. Oo the Khamid, and now you have a Taina on me. You have a Taina. I have a Kasha on me. So, so before we get to that, but but Lameis he wasn't the Melech yet. He wasn't the Melech yet. Why would you call him Melech? Alshayma Asit. So Chazkel Abramsky brings over this kasha from the altar from the Vadik. In fact, the altar from the Vadik, very good. Alshayma Austin is going to be a Melch, but right now he's not a Melch. So Chazkel Abramsky brings a beautiful p'sha from the altar. The altar explains because in 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 in, in and Zakeh's vision, he saw what Nevu showed him, and since he saw Al-Shema Austin, he saw that 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 that. Um, that Vespasian is going to be Melech and in his mind Vespasian is already Melech he believes so strongly in the Nebuah that he had in his, in his Kabbalah that he's going to be a Melech so Qilu now is already a Melech even though technically legally he wasn't a Melech but in his mind he was already a Melech Pchatz Obramsky, we mentioned him also in the past he suffered not under the Nazis but he suffered under the Russians Pchatz Abramsky was a rub in Russia and when he tried to leave Russia they basically threw him into Siberia for five years a five year uh, term in Siberia. That's where he finished working on his sefer Chazayin Yecheskel. The first volume was written before they threw him into jail. But the, the rest of the sefer, the completion of Chazayin Yecheskel, was written when he was in Siberia. And when he came out of Siberia just to, end, just to make him ruin him even more they shaved his beard. And when Rav tights went to greet him and uh, when he was released in 1931 he had no idea where he was because he was expecting to see a rabbi with a big beard but the Russians just to be Russian difficult just to be mavaza they shaved his beard and they, uh, and they made him go uh, without a beard he ended up moving to, uh, to England where he was a uh, with the head of the Rabbonim in England, with Dayonim, and ultimately he moved to Eretz Yisrael. Again, another great Godel who suffered. Again, these gadolim, we, we sometimes don't appreciate their Torah. When we, when we read their Torah, we don't realize how much went into what they wrote. You know, <clears throat> we read a shtickle from Chazen Yiches, we've quoted it many times in the Sunday morning but Just to think about, he wrote this when he was in Siberia. In freezing cold Siberia, that evil, evil place, he wrote a Sefer that we have today, and he smuggled it out on cigarette wrappers. unbelievable. The Monsieur Nefesh that these people did, and we're not talking about thousands of years ago. He died in the, in the 1970s, I believe, not so long ago. These were great, great people that were Messias Nefesh for tire. Okay, so what happens next? So I, I really want to get to... to uh, I'm going to just slip a little bit, because it's getting late, and I want to get to a very important idea over here. Igmar tells us that... That um, after, I'm skipping because I'm really short on time. The Gemara tells us that Rabbi Yechlem and is sitting there next to Vespasian. And Vespasian has one shoe on and one shoe off. And he wants to put one shoe on and he can't get the other shoe on. And then he decides, you know, I'll just take the other shoe off and put on a different pair of shoes, and he can't get the other shoe off. And he's kind of having a, a panic attack. He's on this, trying to figure out what's going on over here. So the Mazaki tells him, no, it's very normal. Since you became, because they, in the middle of this, they got the telegram that you're becoming the Melech. So you, since you heard good news, so your, your, your bones start to swell, and that's why you can't fit into the other shoe, and you can't take the other shoe off. So he says, what do I do? So he says, well, have a person that you don't like walk in front of you, and that will uh, make you angry, and that will cause the swelling to go down. And it or... And V'echa was very impressed. Uh, I'm sorry, V'echa yes, Mezakeh was very impressed with this. And he says, you know what, I'm about to leave. But uh, Titus, evil Titus, which we're not going to get to tonight. We'll talk about it, Blin the Kinnas. Evil Titus is going to take me over. But before I leave, I'm going to give you three requests. Three, like a genie, right? Three wishes. So this is the famous Gemara. So V'echa asks for three things. What are the three things V'echa Mezakeh asked for? So the Gemara tells us V'echa Mezakeh asked for the yavne Give me a place in Eretz Israel called Yavne where I can have the Thamit HaChem where Torah will not be lost. I need a place for Torah to continue. That was one thing he asked for. He asked for the base Nasi not to be destroyed and the last thing he asked for was for a doctor to help Reb Tzaddik. And the Gemara says, a very important Pasuk. The Gemara says we have a Pasuk in Isha'ah. HaKadosh Baruch Hu sometimes... Uh, makes smart people make foolish decisions. And the Gemara says this about Rebbe HaMezaka because Rebbe could have asked for the Romans to stop bothering Klai roll to save the base of Mikdash, not to attack us. <clears throat> and the Gemara makes it sound like this was uh, so somewhat of a mistake on Rebbe HaMezaka's part. And the Gemara says back no Rebbe Mazaki figured that he's never going to get that request. That's, that's not even on the bargaining table. And therefore he figured I'll shoot for something small. But the Gemara has this puzzle over here Meishiv Chachomim Achor V'dayitam so someone wants to asked Rabbi Salvechik you know, how could it be that throughout the beginning of the Holocaust many Rabbonim suggested staying, not all the Rabbonim I'm talking about Big gedolim suggested leaving, many said stay stay, how could they have been so foolish to not see the, the writing on the wall, now I'm, I'll tell you what Rabbi Salvechik answered, but just from a historical standpoint I find that question to be very troubling because if anyone would have this is all, that question is a hindsight question if anyone was living during that time, no one in a million, billion years would have ever have imagined what the Holocaust would have been. No one. So it's really not such a fair question, but Rabbi Salveitchik answered this puzzle. Rabbi Salveitchik answered that at times in the world, HaKadosh Baruch Hu does not give the tzaddikim and the, and the chachamim the, the, the das to make certain decisions because Hashem wants a certain outcome. Hashem didn't want to be a asking for this. Hashem didn't want the G'dayim telling people to leave Europe. Hashem has a cheshbin and for whatever reason, He tells... People to make certain decisions. Now, the truth is, I, I think the more, the more logical answer to that question is that people really didn't know. And I'll prove it to you. One of the great Kedolim that suffered through the Holocaust was the Swedish. The Swedish was a Bichil Jakob ya- Weinberg. Bichil Yaakov Weinberg was a Talmud of Slobodka Yeshiva. He ended up towards the, 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 before the war, he was one of the great Rosh Yeshivas in the famed seminary, Hildesheimer Seminary. And we have letters that he wrote to the Nazi Party in 1933, where he basically endorsed the Nazi Party. And he felt that Nazism was the answer to socialism, to, to communism, really, I'm sorry, not socialism, to communism. And he basically said, and he wrote a letter to the party in 1933, basically saying that, no, we're, 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 we're not, you know, you keep on looking at us as this negative party, the Jewish party, we're not so bad, we really appreciate what you're doing, that you're squashing communism. And for many years leading up till basically until um, until Kristallnacht, he didn't think the Nazis were as bad as everyone else thought. To the point where, when there was a discussion about whether or not they should move the seminary to Eretz Yisrael, Eb Chaim said they shouldn't move it for different reasons. Eb thought that the seminary doesn't belong in a place like Eretz Yisrael, but that's for a different time. One of, the, one of the reasons historians believe that Eichel Yaakov did not want to move the seminary to Eretzos is because he really didn't think in a million years it would ever be anything more than a little bit of a crazy rhetoric and life would settle down. The Yidin didn't know, the Pasha didn't know. No one anticipated, no one thought, no one imagined. But clearly in life a Baruch Hu has a plan. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has an idea of who's going to live and who's not going to live. a Baruch who knows who makes certain decisions, who makes other decisions. And we don't know. It's very easy to look back in hindsight and judge, but Bishas said these things were very difficult. But lemais, the Gemara ends off, and we're going to have to end off here for tonight. Hopefully we won't have to learn this next year. But the Gemara ends off that... That they, that the that Vespasian granted the and Zakkai these three wishes, and that's why we have Yavne. Yavne was a safe haven for Torah, and that's why Torah continued through the Churban and post the Chorben, and Bar Hashem through all the many Churbanes that Klal Yisrael suffered. And Belineda will talk about this if we have Tishuba. We'll talk about the loss of Torah of the Holocaust. Forget, I don't mean Chazav not to focus on the light, but there was so much Torah that was lost. In the Holocaust, so much Torah that was lost in World War I, so much Torah that was lost in the Gemara burning of 1240, so much Torah lost in the Crusades. But Baruch Hashem, Bechazdi Hashem, we have so much Torah still left today. We have Svarim, and we have, we have Kailim and Batimidrashim, and, and online learning, and, and, and Shurim Baruch Hashem. Amidst all the various Khorbanas of Klai, so the Torah still continues. In Mr. Hashem, we should not have to experience the Tishabah, we should be Zaykha this year. We still have a few days left. With the, to, to turn Tisha B'Av into a mayid, into a yamtif, into a joyous yamtif where we're going to be able to dance and sing, rejoice together, understand the ways of a Kalish Baruch, Hu, understand why so much tragedy, so much pain and suffering. We should be together to greet Mashiach with the arrival and the great news of Mashiach, Be'emherbi Yemenu. Have a wonderful evening, and will be back next Tuesday night.